I think it's been a great weekend. We've, there's a sense that God is advancing. And not only that, but this weekend there's been a, um, an equipping time up in Bloemfontein for the Free State Churches and Northern Cape Churches. I think they said they've had 14 salvations. At an equipping time, not an evangelism time. Like everybody there is supposed to be a leader, and they still saw 14 salvations. They're seeing baptisms. We're seeing the, we're seeing the kingdom of God advance. Uh, I've seen on social media um, the church in Holland seeing salvations. The church on the Isle of Man seeing salvations and baptisms. All around the world, God is moving. And we've got to move with him. In Exodus 13, we read that God gave the Israelites a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that's representative of the Holy Spirit. And when the pillar moved, the people moved. And we've got to move with the moves. And, you know, often people come to me and say, I love change. And I say, no, you don't. Because most of us don't like change. Even change for the better, because we, we're comfortable with what we know. We're comfortable where we are, and, and change often requires uh, discomfort. It, it involves letting go. We've heard that this weekend. But I've realized something. Whatever God asked me to let go of, I find later was worthless. And what I lay hold of is priceless. And I want to encourage us... Um, and I want to build, I don't want to teach tonight, I, I want to share something of my story and, and, and I want to try and build faith based on, and I want to build on what Mornay said, almost like his, his I want to say his farewell <laughs> address, he's, he's, he's only going to Cape Town, but he talked about how we need to position ourselves in our attitudes for what God wants to do. And I want to share a little bit about part of my story where God dealt with a lot of my attitudes in a very short period and where seemingly insignificant decisions and insignificant events had massively significant repercussions. And that can, be a pos that can work positively and negatively. When you look through Scripture, have you noticed how many times an insignificant event or an insignificant contribution changes the world? He's, Jesus is preaching to 5,000 and they're hungry and a little boy comes with an insignificant offer of his packed lunch. Yeah? Galilee, an insignificant part of the world, sees the Messiah ministering and a bunch of unschooled, dirty, uneducated fishermen insignificant. In the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories is Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know that story where Jonathan and his armor bearer go and beat up some Philistines? When you read that story, and you can go, go read it in your own time, but basically the story starts off, the, the Philistine army was as numerous as the sand on the shore. And then Jonathan and his armor bearer go, and you know how many people they kill? They kill about 20 Philistines. You go, well, what difference is that going to make? Like it was an act of great faith, but what difference is it going to make? We can kill 20 out of 200,000. 
And yet God used their faith. And in that, it says God brought confusion to the Philistines. And those Israelites who'd gone over to the Philistines came back. The Israelites that were in hiding came out of hiding. And that small act reverberated through the entire nation of Israel. And God won a great victory. And here's the deal. We can talk about Josh Jen, and Josh Jen is, what, six and a half thousand members now, 50 odd congregations. And you can say, well, I can't make much of a significant difference. Who am I? One person, one family, one community, one congregation. You represent a small percentage of Josh Jen. What difference can we make? Well, when you respond in obedience, when you, when you respond in faith, what we see as insignificant, God does massively significant things with. Are you with me? So I'm just going to share something of my story. Now, here's my disclaimer. This story may make me look good because <laughs> I'm choosing a positive story. But every, for every story that makes me look good, I've got a hundred that make me look like an idiot. And if you want those stories, just contact Chad. He's got plenty of them. <laughs> okay. So, and my concern sometimes is as preachers, when we preach, we, wanna, we, want, we wanna communicate faith. We wanna communicate the goodness and glory of God. So we tend to tell, tell stories of when God used us. And you don't often hear about the times when we were stupid and disobedient right? But I'll come back another time and tell you some of those stories. So this story starts way back in October of 2003, just shortly after my first daughter was born. So my first daughter's born, my wife's given up work, we were privileged enough that she could stay at home. And I was being super successful at work. I was the national sales manager of a company and I had just closed the biggest deal in the his history of the company. It was a multi-million rand deal. That one deal was bigger than the entire company's turnover had been three years previously. Yeah. And I was going to get lots and lots of juicy commission at 6%. You can do the sums. And this is back 2003 when money was worth something. So life was comfortable. I was blessed. I was on eldership. Life was great. Nothing to complain about. Until Andrew came for supper. <laughs> when Andrew comes for supper, get down on your knees and pray. <laughs> and he said, Mike, how would you feel about coming on to staff? And I said, fine. And in one sense, it was an easy decision. Even though I knew that meant I waved goodbye to all that juicy commission because I was about to resign. I couldn't suddenly send my wife off to work to make up the difference. And I knew what church salaries were. I think salary is a generous word for what they were back in the day. <laughs> I once went to, to speak to an unbelieving husband of somebody in the church, and he said, you guys are only in it for the money, and I think I spent 10 minutes rolling on the floor laughing.
But there was a reason that it was a relatively easy decision for me. And that's because when I was younger, when I was as young as 14, God spoke to me and people prophesied over me that I would be an, el an elder, I would be in full-time ministry. And I said, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be a lunatic to want to be an elder. I kind of still think that. <laughs> you've got to be a lunatic to want to be an elder unless God's called you to it. But I ran away from that. I said, not a chance. I'm going to go into business and I'm going to be successful in business. And guess what? I was never successful. Every business opportunity I had, every job, one sales job, I was 140% of my target and I got fired because the boss wanted to steal my sales for himself to make him look better. All these kinds of unfair things happened to the point where I was absolutely broke. I was so broke, I remember going into the bank one day with my credit card to draw money on my credit card so I could pay my minimum balance on my credit card. Have you ever been that broke? Not to be recommended at all, but that's where I was. And I got to the stage where I, w I was so, I got to play no hope. And I said, okay, God, I'll give you a year. I'll give you one year of my life to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. And he brought me to South Africa in January of 1994, when everybody said, you're crazy. There's going to be war. There's going to be violence. I was the only white man trying to get into the country. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Still here. I'm like a bad rash. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> but then I'd, I did three years of Bible college. I graduated from Bible college with no ministry opportunities, nothing. I had to go and get secular work. And within six months, I went from being a commission-only salesperson to being a national sales manager. Same person, same skill set. The only thing that had changed was I'd learned I need to put the kingdom of God first, not my own life. And so that had been rooted into me through lots of pain, suffering, and debt. And so when Andrew came to me and said, will you come full-time, I just knew it was... I knew it was something that God called, had called me to. And so I want to urge you, don't be as stupid and stubborn as me. I ran away for 12 years from what God had for me. And so I said, yes. But here was the challenge. This was middle of October 2003. He said, the reason I want you to come on to staff is I want you to start a year of your life program starting in January. And I had, a, month, I had a, a trip to the UK booked. I was spending a month in the UK. So between the middle of October and the middle of January, I had to figure out what this year of your life program was going to be, what the curriculum was going to be, how it was going to work, and I had to somehow find some people to actually come and do it. Like, who are you going to find to, to commit to your... All your students, it's October, they've already applied for university. That, I mean... It's impossible, right? And so, but I said, okay, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do my best. God help me. So I planned, and I went to the UK. And what was really interesting is, on the first Sunday we announced that we were doing it, 
there were two young men visiting who weren't even from Joshua and weren't even quite sure why they were visiting us. And they heard this announcement, and the one young man went, that's what God wants me to do. His name was Ryan Kingsley. <laughs> and he was the very first guy to sign up for our Year of Your Life program. And then others. Uh, Erica, who's now in Namibia with Yaku, and Wayne Dodd, and others. Daniel Holly has done. So, so many guys. Have, uh, and so God made a way. But the problem was I got back from the UK, and sometimes this is how we work in Josh Gem. We, we, we work by following the Spirit, not by following well-led plans. Sandra so asked me to come on to staff, but we hadn't had a discussion about salary. He said, we'll, we'll sort that out nearer the time. So I got back from my holiday, my very expensive UK holiday, met with Andrew, and Andrew said, Mike, we've got a small problem. Our giving has dropped, and our expenses for building our building has increased. We have no money to pay you, but we still need you to work because we've already announced this, and we've got people signed up for this year of your life, so we can't cancel it. So basically, what we need you to do is come and work for us for nothing. Can you make a plan with your old company? I said, I'll try. And so I found myself in a situation where I was working six days a week for the church for no salary and one day a week for my old company consulting. Poor me, right? And I did complain a bit. But here's where things get interesting. At that time, just after I'd started that, Andrew announced that he was taking a team to Brazil. And God said to me, go to Brazil with Andrew. I said, God, I've got no money. What's that got to do with it? Okay. So I put my name down, trusting that the money would come in. And exactly one week before our flights, do you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I had... I had to pay for the flights, and I paid for them on my credit card. Again, not recommended. But I paid for the flights on my credit card, and I thought, God's still going to provide. And I arrived at the airport on the day of my flight, and you'll never guess what happened. Nothing. <laughs> and I got on the plane, and I flew with the team to Brazil. And I didn't preach once. I wasn't there to preach. I was just there to support Andrew while Andrew preached at a conference and, and Brad Verena. And about five days into the trip, we had a day off. And we had a day off in downtown Sao Paulo. And so they said, go shopping. Lots of shops. And back then, Brazil was very cheap. People, you could buy things for about half the price. And I ended up somehow with Andrew Selly. Who knows how Andrew Selly likes to shop? <laughs> he likes to shop. And one other full-time elder. And we spent half a day going around shops. And these two guys were like, oh, wow, look at these jeans. They're so cheap. I'm going to get two pairs. And look at these Caterpillar boots. They're so cheap. I'm going to get a pair of those. And they were 
putting things in the basket and they were like, Mike, what are you getting? I go, no, no, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. I'm okay. And on the outside, it looked like nothing wrong. It was wrong. But on the inside, something began to rise up. Something really ugly. This self-righteous, this arrogant thing that I didn't vocalize it, but in my mind I was going, yeah, not enough money to pay me a salary, eh? Enough to pay you two so you can go shopping for Caterpillar boots. (laughs) How many of you think I was justified in that attitude? I thought I was justified. Surely the Christian heart should be, you know, Mike, we don't have enough money, so we'll all take a cut so that we're all equal. That's, yeah. In many ways, I could have justified my opinion, but my my opinion in my heart wasn't right. It was offense. And as it rose up, as it rose up, fortunately, God loves me enough. He smacked me so hard. And he said, what has it got to do with you? So what do you mean? He said, did I ask you to work for no salary? I said, yes, Lord. He said, did I ask them to work for no salary? I said, I don't know. He said, well, stop your complaining. You've got to do what I've asked you to do. And I don't treat everybody equally. And I know that because I'm a dad now with two daughters. I realize you don't, t- you don't treat your children identically. You try and find the key to each child, to bring the, each child into the fullness of who they can be. As leaders, as an elder, and that's something I had to learn. I, I, used to, I used to think it was unfair if we treated people differently. And then I realized, no, we do need to treat people differently because I've got to find the key for each heart. And in that moment, I had to find the key for my own heart and deal with my own offense and selfishness and actually the fact that I thought somehow that the church was responsible for my provision instead of God. You know, it's so easy, to be honest, as an elder who gets paid by the church to become dependent on the church rather than remembering God is my provider. And then I'm in big trouble because if I'm an elder that thinks the church provides, that means your tithes provide, and then I'm, I'm a shepherd who wants the sheep to feed me. That's an evil shepherd. You understand? This was a small little thing. I... You go, well, was it a big deal? Like, you were kind of justified, whatever. I'm convinced, I'm convinced if I'd let that thing rise within me, it would have torn my relationship with Andrew. It would have shaped my entire future. But things were only going to get more difficult. This was a trip on which I coined the phrase, render unto visa what is visas. We were connecting with the leader of a a big church movement in Brazil, and we went to a a barbecue restaurant. Come with me to Brazil. You've not lived till you've been to a Brazilian barbecue restaurant where they just come and bring huge hunks of steak to your table until you can't eat anymore and you surrender. You've been able (laughs) That's what... And so we were at this restaurant, and there was about six of us from Josh Jen and about six guys from this other church, and we were... 
drinking, we were eating, drinking, cool drink. We were <laughs> eating steak. We were just having a great time and talking about things. And then Andrew whispered, he said, Mike, make sure we get the bill before they do, because they're going to want to pay, and I want Josh Jen to pay. Wow, okay. So I'm looking, I'm looking, I see the waiter with the bill, and I see one of their guys, and it's like, okay, who's going to get to the waiter first? So we run, and I get to the waiter, and I take the bill from the waiter to give to Andrew, and I'm walking back to Andrew, and God spoke to me. And I've got to tell you, this must be God, because it could not have been me. God said, I want you to pay the bill. I go, but God, I paid to be here. I'm broke. I'm, I'm racking up my credit card. You know, we're not supposed to be in debt, all of those things. It's going to disc- he said, I want you to pay the bill. So I went and I paid the bill and I sat down. And then Andrew looked at me. He said, where's the bill? I said, it's been paid. And he started to rebuke me. I said, I wanted us to pay it, not them. You kind of failed me. And I'm like, talk about being punished. No good deed goes unpunished, right? And everything again wanted something to rise up within me to say, do you know what I've sacrificed for you? How dare you speak to me like... And again, God checked my heart. And I walked out of there and I said, no, I, I've settled it, it's fine. And the rest of the trip, I didn't preach once. I think the only thing of any significance I did was I led a prayer meeting in one of the small churches. And even that, it's like, why, God, did you send me all this way at all this expense just to sit and listen to Andrew preaches that I've heard from him before? I'm sure none of you have ever felt any of these feelings. I'm sure none of you have ever been challenged with any of these wrestles and these thoughts. I'm just really carnal. I'm lazy and selfish and I enjoy comfortable life. But the interesting thing is the trip ended. I arrived home, walked into my house, and the first thing I noticed, I'd asked somebody to house it, and the first thing I noticed... This is showing my age now. There was a DVD player and a home theater system in my house. I went, oh, he's obviously brought that and left it and forgotten to take it home. But with it was a note, Mike, we saw you didn't have a home theater system. We thought we would bless you. Wow, thank you, Lord. The very next day, Andrew phoned me. Something's just happened with our finances. We've got enough to pay you. Somebody else came and said, I don't know why, but God's asked me to give you this. And it was normal. And God unlocked finances. I don't, I, don't, I don't know the theology of this. I wonder if even the church's finances would have been unlocked if I hadn't. I don't know. I don't think I'm that powerful, but in the mystery of God. But the interesting thing is, we were linked with a, an apostolic movement at the time and, and, and we, we parted from them and we didn't want to cause confusion to the churches so Andrew said we're not going to go into Brazil again because they're linking with this other apostolic field and we don't want to cause any problems. Great, that's fine. 
And two years later, just in passing, I just sat with Andrew somewhere. I said, I'm wondering how the guys in Brazil are doing. He said, why don't you go and find out? And I get, what? Who am I? I'm a nobody. I've, I've never led a team. I've never done anything apostolic. I'm not an apostle. When I went last time, they won't even remember who I was because I didn't even lead anything or preach. And now you want me to go on my own, take a team, and, and go and like, phone these guys or email these guys out of the blue and say, hey, would you like me to come? And those, who? But I went and began to develop relationships. The one relationship I built on that trip, uh, somebody said, a friend of mine's just planted a church. Will you go visit him? Would you preach in his church on Sunday? I said, okay. I just felt the Lord. And I went, and the church was in his flat. And in Brazil, it's very, very small flats. It was a church of about eight people. And I preached there. We had a team of five. Mornay van der Merwe. Some of you remember, Julie, Milani, myself. That church of eight, whatever its name was then, is now known as Station 337. It's got three congregations, hundreds of people. It's touching churches across Brazil. It's even touched churches in South Africa and elsewhere. And we're now connecting with another network of churches, of hundreds of churches into Brazil. I'm going to Mozambique this year because they also have partnerships with a bunch of churches in Mozambique. There's doors open in Mozambique. And people sometimes go, oh, well, look at Mike. I'm not an apostle to the nations. I'm just an idiot who God decides to use because then he gets all the glory. (laughs) But if I am anything... And if I've had any influence, that trip where those offenses had to be dealt with, those attitudes, that obedience, because I thought I knew how to sacrifice. I thought I knew how to give. I thought I knew how to be generous. I thought I knew how to lay down my life. But here's the thing about laying down my life. I think I'm a zombie because every time I think I'm dead, I find myself walking around again. And there comes significant times in people's lives. And here's the thing. Often we only realize how significant it is after the event. I didn't think that trip to Brazil would be particularly significant. And in fact, the church movement that we were talking to and working with, we have no relationship with them at all anymore. (laughs) But there are moments, I believe, where we need to position ourselves. Moments of testing. And I think we've got to be careful because... I do believe God is a God of many chances. My life is a testimony to that. I have failed him more times than I can count, and he's restored me, and he still wants to use me. But in some cases, and in some instances, and in some ways, he's a God of one chance. Have you ever read in Scripture? And sometimes, like, was it Hezekiah? They said, bang these arrows on the ground, and he did. And then they said, you didn't bang it often enough. Therefore, and he's like, what? 
Like, David committed adultery and murder, and he, he got away with it, and this guy just didn't bang the arrows enough time. It's not fair. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Because God isn't fair. He's just. Shem, I was preaching at a youth conference in, in Brazil, and I had young uh, JP, a friend of ours, translating for me, and I said that. I said, God isn't fair. If God was fair, things like this wouldn't happen. And I just smacked him across the head. And I smacked him way harder than I'd planned, but it proved a point. <laughs> Suffering produces perseverance. And... The point I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is often it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. And now, I just sense in my spirit, is an incredibly significant time for Joshua generation. As Andrew goes to, and he's still leading us, but he's relocating to America, that creates something of a vacuum that we have to fill. And so Monet, Monet's relocating to Cape Town as part of filling that vacuum, but then he leaves a vacuum here. So somebody feels, we all, it's an opportunity for all of us to rise up. I honestly believe that as Andrew goes and he says, I'm willing to go and take responsibility for a small, difficult to lead church. And let, let me tell you, he's going to downscale his standard of, of living massively. Because <laughs> it's very, very, very expensive to live in California. He's not going to live the California party lifestyle, believe me. As he sacrifices... And as we sacrifice with him, I believe God is positioning us for great growth. As a congregation, I hope you're trusting that this room is not going to be big enough for you in a year or two's time. And this isn't a rah-rah, let's save the world, God's going to bring revival through. I don't know if God's going to bring revival through us. But I know he wants to grow us. And I know we're living in significant times. And the fact that we're, we're, we're facing a new wave of opposition and hostility tells me that we must be moving forward. And if we're moving forward, I want no man, no woman, no child to be left behind. Nobody to be lost. Not even Chad. <laughs> Especially not Chad. Love you. Love you, bud. <laughs> we need to guard our hearts at this time. We will face tests. But here's the wonderful thing about being tested in, in the Lord. And if you, read, if you read throughout the New Testament, it talks constantly about being tested. Be tested to show yourself approved. Yeah? A deacon must be tested before he's been brought on to being a deacon. When I was at school, we had a chemistry test the one day. It was multiple choice. And one of my friends, wasn't really a friend, I didn't have any friends at school. One of my classmates, he managed to both fail the test and get detention for cheating. Because <laughs> he found out the answers to the multiple choice test, memorized them, 
and then Mr. Line. <laughs> so he got all the answers wrong, but the teacher could see the sequence. When God tests us, he has no desire to fail us. He tests us with a view to us succeeding. Jesus was tested in every way that we are. And the, the faith that we have is that when we're in Christ, we have within us and advocating for us the one who's passed every test. And here's the good news. The one who takes the test for us, who's watched the, the, the series Suits? Uh, I don't necessarily re recommend it. But it starts off with this young guy who, take, who takes money from people to sit exams for them. Right? We've got somebody who can take the test for us. And he's the one who set the questions. He's the one who's got all the answers. That's good news. I hated school. I hated exams. I was terrible at school. If I knew that I could take the person who set the test with me to give me the answers, it would have been a lot more pleasurable. So you will face tests. But God isn't testing you, looking for you to fail. He's looking to test you that you might be purified. Scripture talks about being refined. And you know what, refine, what refining is? Refining is removing impurities. And I don't know if this is true. I've heard it from many preachers, but there's lots of preachers' stories that are rubbish. They've just been repeated by lots of preachers. But they say when you're refining gold and you put it un under great heat, right, and all the scum rises to the top, and that's what the testing does. When I was in that shop, scum I didn't think was there was revealed so that it could be removed. And they said, how do you know when the gold is pure? And they said, in the old days, now they've got all kinds of machinery. In the old days, they say, you would know the gold is pure when the goldsmith can see his own reflection in the liquid gold. And that's the testing process, that the Lord will bring tests. He might bring heat. He might bring persecution. He might bring suffering. He might bring a lost job. He might allow all kinds of things to happen to test, to see what is in us that isn't of him. And guess what? That story is 20 years old, and there's still scum that keeps coming to the surface in my life. But when we pass the test, we better reflect the person of Jesus. The tests that you might face, you might get tested by being overlooked. Chad actually publicly said, you know, he thought he might be the guy to oversee the region. And then Andrew said, I want Hannes. And He's a good guy and he, he's a team player, but I'm sure at least part of him was going, why not me? It's a test of being overlooked, being offended. I might have offended some of you tonight. But you know what, what one of the hardest tests to pass is? And this would be a whole preach in itself, the kind of tests that we face. 
the test of success. Because success tests them in a way that failure never can. But whatever your test is, be aware. And the best way to be aware is to be accountable, to be open, to live in the light. Because the other nice thing about this test is I'm allowed to crib off my mates. I'm allowed to come to Benny and say, Benny, I don't know the answer. Do you have the answer for me? We won't be disqualified for that. Live in the light. Be submissive. Be team players. Invite people in. And sometimes it's a test that nobody else can help you with except to pray. But as much as we're moving forward, as much as I'm looking forward to many testimonies of salvations, healings, deliverance, the kingdom of God being extended, I'm also convinced that we'll be going into a season where many of us will face tests of our hearts, of our thinking, of our attitudes. And I just want to urge you, be like the Mike that I've told you about tonight, not the idiot Mike that I could tell you a hundred stories about. And allow the Lord to purify you in the testing process that you might come out the other side more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. So just in line with that, maybe some of us have to repent. Um, you know, Mike was sharing about, it's really about preparing our hearts for growth. And Jesus wants to grow his church, but he's not going to just add anybody to us and just how he's going to do it is through a people that are faithful. And we've got to be faithful with our own hearts. And I don't believe, I believe prophetically, um, I don't know if you're ready to announce this, Chair, but, but we may be extending this hall, if I can say that. We're praying about it, so just pray with us. But I, I just feel maybe in line with that, you know, it's easy to break open a building and make it more accommodating for people. But sometimes it's even, it's really harder to make the heart more accommodating for what God wants to do. And, uh, and so I just felt for that season to happen, for us to have a bigger area here, I feel before that happens, we've got to work on our hearts. And uh, just as Mike was sharing, I, I feel there's some areas in my own life that I feel convicted with, things that I've held back, and just pride. And I can, I can really witness when Mike speaks. You know, I can, oh, well, I've been there. I understand what, he's, what he means. Overlooked, over, you know, being faithful, all those things. And I'm sure all of you here can, in some way, can recognize that. And so... Maybe just in that, I want to ask, maybe let's just take a moment, just close your eyes.